Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian Restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Due to the coronavirus lockdown and the temporary closure of Ombra, this talk was hosted as an online event via Zoom so that we could continue the Negroni talk series as planned. Hi, hello, I'm, I'm Sam and uh, I suppose I'm chairing tonight's talk. But um, before we start, I've got to say like, um, I really like the title of this. I find it very kind of like LBC phoning, i.e. provocative statement, yet yeah, doesn't really mean anything. So I, whoever wrote it, I think should stand up by the statement and explain what they really think, because I don't think it's now is the time for using kind of, uh, um, kind of like words in such a loose manner. I don't think now is a good time to be provocative for the sake of being provocative or for the hope that you might get a headline in next week's trade rag. Um, but on the plus side, let's have a nice chat instead. So, you know, like many of these talks, they have a provocative title, which you all know the answer to is that, uh, is modern architecture shit? No. But that's not really the question, I guess. Uh, anyway, so we're joined uh, today by a whole gang of people, all of whom have some kind of interest in, well, is it architecture? Is it the built environment? Is it their own lives? Is it the city? Um, maybe we'll find out. Uh, I, uh, just to let you know sort of my background, I've made work for far too long on the kind of, you know, kind of fringes between what might, one might think of as sort of art practice, design practice, and art, uh, architecture practice also. Um, and I've often found uh, a lot more inspiration in looking outside of architectural culture and thinking about like, you know, what is, what is interesting, what's relevant, how might we make things which are kind of part of a, a world that we want to be part of. Um, definitely not as a sort of uh, straight down the line professional architect in the um, pocket of a developer which I think is what a lot of today's complaints are going to be about. Um, uh, but we've got um, filmmakers, artists, writers, uh, and me, and you, all here, so we can talk. Uh, I'm not going to introduce everyone because I don't really know everyone, but uh, um, so I'll hand over to everyone to, let, to introduce themselves. So maybe um, uh, to our speakers, if you could first of all just say who you are, what you do, but maybe also a little bit about your response to the um, kind of uh, uh, straw man title of today's event. Um, Hetty, you're, you're top of my list, I can see here on the Zoom participant list. So looks Hi. like it's you. 
Um, my name is Hetty Judah. I'm a writer, and I also weirdly had the pleasure of editing Sam for quite a long time yeah. when I was working at Art Review. So I used to edit his columns and slash them. Yeah. Off. I can get really revenge brutal. tonight. Um, I, I mean, I guess my, I have this slightly odd twofold experience of architecture because I'm mainly an art critic. I write about art. So I experience the most kind of, well, sometimes the most glorious side of modern architecture in art galleries, sometimes the most preposterous side of modern architecture in art galleries. And then I also experience modern architecture, contemporary architecture, you know, just kind of walking around the city and having to deal with the day to day, like as we all do, and issues of, uh, you know, development and the privatization of public space and uh, schools being built without access to open air or green space and all of these kinds of things that bedevil us in the day to day. So I feel like I've got this very kind of dualistic um, relationship with contemporary architecture. Uh, so that's who I am. Oh, and I've also written a book called Art London, which is there, which I actually have for reference, just so I can to remember the things I've written in the past because my brain's completely turned to jelly. Uh, thank you, Sam. Thanks, Hetty. Mark, you're next on my random Zoom list. Okay. Um, well, I'm a filmmaker living in London, and I think the you mentioned, you know, our interest and certainly the cities one of mine I haven't traveled very far to make work but um, I did once make a film in Calais um, so that's you know uh, you know a little bit of a distance um, and some in the north of England but mostly in London actually and I think that I mean my primary interest is in people in human stories and the themes that I'm interested in exploring are very universal themes but I always look for strong and um, um, coherent settings for my films. So I've made films, you know, my Calais film would be unrecognizable in a way if you were to drive through the town because the film creates a particular kind of Calais that I imagine the um, tourist board wouldn't be very happy with. Um, I've made films in the financial district in the, or a film in the financial district in the city called Men of the City, and it's all set within the square mile. Um, and you know in towns on the outskirts of London in Barking for example I made a film in an elevator and th those settings as I said are extremely important and they inform the lives of the people in the film so I guess my interest in this is that dialogue between you know human stories where people are based the setting how the setting can you know emotionally affect the, the stories and the lives of the, of, the, of the people that I'm interested in. Um, often those spaces can be quite in between. I mean, making a film in an elevator and sticking to that and not moving into their apartments, you know, is obviously a very in-between space. They're kind of leaving their apartment in this shaft going out and the, the whole film is set in that, in that in-between space. And it, you know, it becomes an interesting way to you know it becomes a kind of confessional so it sort of subverts in a way what what these uh you know what the functional intention are of, of these spaces i mean i mean i also made a film out called outside the court um it's based outside Highbury and islington magistrates court and i chose that place because it's one of the only courts in in london that has a sort of um you know piazza, piazza you, should, you could say outside of it a space where i could hang out and actually talk to people whilst they were waiting for their cases, they would come out and smoke. Other other courts um, didn't have that kind of space. And it was interesting because the drama's going on out there 
was so much more, or let's say, for me, or more interesting than what was going on inside, and I was seeing things that the judge wouldn't see. So again, another example of how um, place and space can affect the telling, uh, the telling of very human stories. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Um, Nick, hello. Oh, hi. Hi, Nick. Uh, yeah, um, so I'm a filmmaker and a writer. Uh, just now, in the middle of the uh, lockdown, I've spent the last few weeks launching a new website which enables people to rent land. Because uh, obviously not many people have ever thought of renting land, but it's actually quite hard to do. You can buy land, much more easily you can rent land. And I think we're going to come into a time now where lots of people realise that they don't need to live in the city to work. They can work from anywhere if they're lucky to have a job, lucky enough to have a job. Uh, but they might also very likely be people who've lost their job and are having to make new living arrangements for themselves. Um, you know, outside of the civilized sphere of houses and flats and architects, possibly involving sleeping in their car or in an RV. And so. I've set up this website, it's called Land Buddy, where you can go and rent land. And of course, the problem is, once you've rented your land, you've then got to somehow live on it without anybody stopping you. And in this country, especially, the planning system is there to prevent you from doing that. It's very hard to go on agricultural land and just live on it full time. There is one exception to that, which is if a property is of extraordinary architectural significance, which of course is decided by uh, you know, the great and the good and the architectural uh, establishment themselves. Uh, but it locks out most people and it locks out anybody who actually needs to live in the countryside right now, which I will argue is many hundreds of thousands or millions of people worldwide. Thank you. Thanks Nick. I mean, uh, other people would argue that the planning law is there to protect us from unscrupulous uses of land. Um, That's that absolutely what we can right. have later on. Well, um, can I just come back on that just to make one small point, which is that you're absolutely right. But the same law that protects us from rampant speculators concreting over the countryside and protects us from gypsies and travelers, you know, setting up um, encampments also stops environmentalists from living ecologically on the land. And it should be possible to distinguish between those different categories. We should all be allowed to have donkey sanctuaries for our mothers. Um, thanks, Nick. I, Priya, hello. I do know you and we've worked together, um, but tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Priya. Um, I have encountered architecture professionally um, since I've been editor of Icon for the last couple of years. Before that, I was my work focused more on design, so it's sort of related. Um, but during this time, I covered the spectrum of architecture from a school by David Rockwell in New York, so a building, to the more experimental. Um, so that would include installations at Biennales, um, ideas and theories about architecture, um, and also sort of architecture in extreme situations. So one example that I brought with me was this cover, because I thought it was sort of apt today, the end, the end of the earth, not the end of the earth, 
at the ends, i.e. in a geographical sense. So that was a feature about architecture in extreme climates, specifically in sub-zero temperatures. Um, so yeah, I'm interested in architecture across that spectrum, I suppose. Um, and yeah, when, like Sam, when I first read the provocation, I think my gut reaction was, I don't think I want to go there um, because I didn't feel that I could completely defend it. Um, so partly I I'm here as an advocate of architecture, um, but I think it's a good opportunity to ask some important questions of it, um, which, yeah, hopefully we will do over the course of the session. Thanks, Priya. And Andrea, I don't know you, but I do know your amazing um, film, Estate, A Reverie, which is a really moving account of, I guess, a human life at the sort of ends of the life of a, of a housing estate uh, under the kind of contemporary regimes of, of regeneration. Um, so it's great to have you here. So maybe you could just introduce yourself to, to, to everybody. She's muted. Yeah. Do I, can you hear me now? Yeah. So thank you for having me, first of all. Um, yeah, the provocation, there's a lot to be said about it. Um, I also disagree with it. I think that's how I kind of understood it to be possible to participate here. That it's not about whether we agree or disagree, but it's to be argued with, right? Um, so I'm a filmmaker and I work often with um, so my interest in architecture is really only because I live in environments or have lived in environments or have made work in environments that are about to be abandoned um, on several occasions now. And so I'm interested in when is something no longer useful or seen as beautiful when it was once seen as very progressive? What is it that in our society is changing um, that makes something obsolete? Um, but obsolete not as a uh, potential, full of potential, like technology, when it becomes obsolete, we can re-inscribe it with um, another kind of use. But when it actually is seen as something outmoded or um, ready to be abandoned by new ideas. And because for me, that same thing, what I've experienced on um, my estate, which featured in Estate A Reverie, is that um, people equated um, an, an object building with an object people inside of it and that i thought was very interesting to live through to see um at what point do you not recognize yourself anymore within the landscape you've lived in for so long what is that feeling um, and how to describe that feeling and also um now of course it's happened again because the demography has changed so extreme in this part of hackney where i live um where even the faces on stock photographs are no longer representative of anybody who could ever afford to live there from the people who used to live here um and i like the mixing of communities because i think that's always happened um but i'm interested in how um in my work how I sometimes so self-made architecture is the lift architecture is the unruly the wayward the um undesired almost but full of um, life and full of difference and different as a real difference, as a real potential of different ideas, even different experiences, different embodiments of stuff. Um, and then the kind of bigger structures that we are all subject to living within, but how do we make spaces regardless of these structures and find ways in which we can navigate and, and take potential and actually question that for the bigger structures. Um, in that kind of profound way, 
in which we, I think, have to, it's almost an obligation, otherwise it's only the same people always continuing with the same history and power, basically. Maybe it's a difficult question for you guys to, to answer, but I wanted to ask um, Andrea and you, Mark, like, what do you think, um, kind of working in the built environment, um, in the city, uh, or in a lift, um, what do you think the camera and the act of filmmaking kind of allows you to, to reveal, which perhaps we couldn't see using other forms of, of media? Good question. Um, I mean, it depends how you work as a filmmaker. I mean, you know, my my and Andrea's films are essentially documentary that we film real people. Um, you know, for me personally, I spend a lot of time building up trust with people. So I'm never there to sort of survey or, you know, running in and out to get a few kind of sound bites. I, you know, I spent two months in that elevator. Um, <laughs> people wondered what the hell I was doing there. You know, I also wondered what I was doing there sometimes. But that actually created the the, the kind of relationship because they would come into that elevator and see me there day after day for literally two months, and it kind of broke the whole thing. Of, well, obviously he's not a journalist. Obviously he's not um, professional. He's some kind of strange strange person with a camera that's just hanging out here and they would ask things like well what are you doing and i say well, i'm you know making a film about the lift and they would look around in the lift and you know to see what's interesting about the lift not knowing that i was interested in them and and of course over time slowly slowly as is very natural you know i built relationships with those people and revealed very profound things about their about their lives um which in that particular film became interesting because of the setting you know when you know, I remember speaking to an elderly guy who was having drink problems and I asked people quite random but provocative questions like, you know, what do you, I mean, he was a fairly aging Scottish alcoholic and I asked him about, um, you know, what do you remember about your childhood? And in this grotty, you know, urine stinking lift, he started speaking about when his father took him up to the, the, uh, the highlands and he saw a golden eagle, you know, and and he breaks himself off from that story as he's about to get emotional and says, I've got to go out and get fags, you know, and it's, it's the setting and that little anecdote that makes that scene what it is. And, you know, that's what the camera can do if you invest time with people and, um, and you're open actually. So, you know, I never have, um, I never have too many preconceptions about, I mean, I never, <laughs> I could never sort of, tell funders what the film is going to be about before they um, release the money, which would make them very anxious. But at least in the past, that was a little bit easier because there were always some maverick commissioners that would say, that sounds really intriguing, intriguing, go away and do it. Um, nowadays, it would be impossible to get films like that actually commissioned. I mean, this was a film that was on Channel 4, you know, um, would never happen now. So, I've, so there are something about, you know, not having preconceptions, spending time with people, um, yeah, just, um, and then, and then you know, the, I mean, in terms of then how it becomes a piece of interesting filmmaking for me is that it's, it's documentary filmmaking, but it's plus something else. And the something else is the intervention that I uh, am involved in, in all, all the films that I make. They tend to, you know, I get very bored by the sort of banal reality quite quickly and then start to dream up things that I could do with these people or ask them to do that the audience may not necessarily know about. 
um, so they perform in some way. Um, and you wouldn't know, you, you would just think perhaps that's just happened that moment, but actually there's been a lot of staging for it to feel spontaneous. Um, but going back to your question, I think, you know, that if you use the camera in, in well, there's many different ways to use a camera, but for me, that's how I would use the camera, that, you know, to be with people over time, I mean, that film is two months, but almost every other film I've made, I've been with people for sometimes over a year, two years, and and usually my films are sort of, uh, they're kind of multi-characters, so um, they're an ensemble. So, you know, I might have a 15 minute story of one character in a film where there's other characters, but I've spent two years or a year and a half developing that narrative with that person over time and hanging out, being there with them and sometimes filming, sometimes not, you know. Um, and Joyce, does that um, resonate with, with your practice? Because I feel um, certainly in what I know of your work is that um, it's also kind of, it's, it's, it's a kind of critique, but also proposition in a, in a sense, mm -hmm. like you're, it's, it's got a certain amount of it, which is sort of about the possibility of different kinds of, 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 of worlds. Mm. So I'm really interested in the prompting and probing of let's make a new world together. Like how do we want the world to be? So it's like, um, a, a, together a reimagining, I suppose, of, so instead of, I mean, it's interesting when we spoke before a little, but instead of um, doing the kind of realist approach that a lot of working class communities in this country get treated with, not Mark's film, I love your film so much, Mark, I mean, all your work, I mean, he knows that anyway, because I know Mark, but um, the, the, the kind of realist lens that always looks again, down at people almost with pity. Um, and I believe in the rebellious nature of all of us and that we have art within all of us, right? So there's always a proposition to um, celebrate the worlds that people are making, um, regardless of the hand that they have been dealt or whatever we call it. Um, and people have, you know, a lot of ideas and, and when you have trust within a community because you've worked with people over a long period of time. So my films also like Marx, but they take often five years, seven years, um, long time anyway. So you develop a certain trust, but also people become um, they, they represent their own version of how they wanted to be represented when they understand what kind of film approach you're taking. So people are very creative and I think I wanted to just add what Hetty was asking all of us now about the mental health um, in relationship to architecture and in my film Estate and also in Here for Life, um, there are quite a few very difficult um, occurrences, such as Parkinson's, when you live alone on the fourth floor and you have nobody to bring you food or whatever. And so people also using the film making, so this is not within architecture, but in terms of filmmaking, people are given a space in my films to um, take up a space. So and that's a campaigning space, but it's not just that. It's also to go further and saying, look, I can't be reduced to just a victim. I'm actually this very um, complex person and this is the whole of my life and I'm not just going to give you the um, cleaned up version of it. And I think there's a real potential within working that way. And I think that's what I'm more interested in also asking you as those of you who work within architecture, like where is that potential when you're making a project? Um, how can you work in a way that allows for the unexpected that comes from within a place, say, for example? Yeah, there's long histories that, and, and Hetty will definitely come back to the question you brought up in the chat. Um, Nick, I wanted to cast you as the sort of modern day Ebenezer Howard um, with your kind of campaign to revolutionise our relationship to the land and what's possible in the agricultural 
uh, uh, territories of this nation. Um, to those of you who don't know, Ebenezer Howard was the kind of inventor, basically, of the Garden City. Um, not an architect, not a planner, um, a failed farmer, a uh, failed journalist, um, who who wrote this um, small tract, uh, Garden Cities of Tomorrow, um, and um, kind of campaigned and through subscription raised money and and eventually even built uh, uh, Wellen and, and Letchworth based on this sort of weird principle that you could transform the value of agricultural land and that value would be held in trust by the community for the value of all the people, of all, all the citizens of that, of that place. Nick, it feels like you're attempting to find loopholes and uh, um, uh, ways of uh, uh, navigating through the bureaucracy of land ownership and the controls which are applied to it in order to liberate us, just as Ebenezer Howard wanted to liberate us from the disease and crime of the industrial city, but also the poverty and loneliness of, um, of the turn of the century uh, agricultural um, worker. What's your vision, Nick? Well, the poverty and loneliness of the turn of the century agricultural worker could equally well apply to the 21st century. Um, I assume you were talking about the 20th century. Yeah, sorry. That century. Uh, it, it hasn't gone away. And to the extent that talking about architecture is talking about power and money and access. Um, and by the way, as a filmmaker, which I also am, I make films about power and money and access and process. And what the film can do, just to briefly answer your previous question, is it can, sh it can show the process in action. Whereas all we see at the end of a building is the building going up and then existing there. There was a process by which that building got determined and given permission and financed. And that's the process that film can show much better than anything else. And it can reveal, it can sort of get behind the curtain and reveal the politics and the deals and the, um, you know, the lack of principle, you might say, that goes into the making of an important building. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to the land, uh, I suppose what I'm trying to do at the moment is unlock the land. You know, the land's been in lockdown for the last hundred years or more, owned in this country by 25,000 people. Well, not since the enclosure, no, Nick. I mean, it's like a, there's a long tradition of, uh, of rebellion against the idea of land ownership in, very specifically in Britain, um, uh, yeah, which you might be part of, right? It's since efficiencies came to agriculture that, that you know, agricultural workers have been forced off the land, that the land has become something you drive through rather than something which is a living organism, as it were. Uh, you know, we're down to, I think, less than 1% of the population employed in agriculture from 4% 25 years ago. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a pretty clear path. Yeah, no one seems to want to do it, do they? They've only got like uh, 25... British people picking strawberries or whatever it is. <laughs> well, I don't know if anybody here is 
looking for a career picking strawberries, but I doubt it. <laughs> um, I don't think it's particularly remunerative. remunerative. But I like picking strawberries for myself. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, so the land is a, is a major political issue, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not an issue anybody wants to confront when they're actually dealing with a landowner who's asking them to build a building. It's a, an issue that people might want to confront at a later time or a different time. And when it comes to housing, which is one of the great crises in this country and about to become a greater crisis, um, there is obviously a deep relationship between housing and the land. And people who don't have land dream of having land. And people who live in cities dream of having land in the country. And the question is, how can we make that possible? It's, it's, not, it's not an immoral thought to want to have your own little bit of land. It's a very natural thought. We've got vast amounts of vacant land not producing anything in this country. There must be some way of uniting the people who want land with the empty land. Um, I've tried to put forward one small solution, which is this Land Buddy website. But obviously there are big legislative, architectural and planning um, movements that would have to take place for, for, for uh, the hundreds of thousands of people who want to live that way to be able to do so. Nick, I feel like you're, you're talking about um, an idea of architecture which has not so much to do with the physical structures, not so much to do with walls and doors and those kinds of things, but the architecture of power and ownership and ideology, those kinds of things and how that stuff is the invisible matter which shapes the world ar around us and maybe that also touches on some of the issues we've talked about uh, earlier on in terms of regeneration um but there's other aspects which are maybe i was thinking more that this talk could also talk, uh, sort of discuss which is like what can what can architecture learn from practices outside of making buildings and i know i can see um uh sean and, and charles in the chat or they were or not in the chat in the list um you know we made work for a long time together where we were often looking outside of architecture you know we're big fans of early dan graham for example and we often felt that there was so much more we could learn from dan graham's understanding of space um uh, and program and suburbia and so on which we would never find from picking up aj or, or bd that's you know that's a very different industry type of uh, kind of worldview um, Hetty, like in terms of sort of art, archi architects who work with art or art which learns from from um, from from working within architectural spaces, what what do you think the value of those kinds of work might be for architects? Um, I mean, it's you know, it's again it, like the like the whole provocation behind this talk. It's such an enormous. Um, like a br such a broad question so i mean there are oh, people i'm doing like, my best and work working with <laughs> what I mean, we've been given Hetty. so before lockdown one of the last things that i did was a talk at the royal academy and one of the people that participated in that was an artist called david bachelor that's written a book called chromophobia and he starts that by going to that kind of acme of what we think of as the kind of like the stereotype expensive modern home and everything is white and flush finishes and there's kind of no visible content inside it and it's essentially an aesthetic dictatorship and he opens up this book talking about 
that kind of aesthetic dictatorship and how that's that dominates so much of the current sphere and so i think he makes a really interesting criticism about the way that architects approach um you know the way that you should the, the ideal of the way that you should live the the kind of aesthetic of all kinds of things and and kind of systems for living and then i thought about other artists who've made kind of works that respond to similar ideas i mean there's been a great series of short films by cecil b evans over the last year i don't know if, last few years i don't know if you've seen them called amos's world and they're brilliant they kind of have thunderbird style puppets and the main set is i think to willow road so she's made this little miniature set of two willow road and it's essentially the dictatorial modernist architect talking about why people are just always fussing about rubbish shoots and why can't they just get on with understanding the fact that they're living in a work of genius and they, they need to comply with his way of seeing things so i think I mean, thinking about artists who respond to architecture, quite often there is this idea that, I don't know, maybe um, you know, artists get to impose their ideas, but architects get to impose their ideas on a much bigger scale and affecting many more people in, a, in quite a dictatorial way. Um, and I guess it's, you know, ideas turn into environment in, in quite an indelible fashion. Yeah. And I think that quite often interests artists, certainly that I've, works I've seen in the last few years. Yeah, I guess it's like often who's, who's in charge of that idea or is the architect simply the kind of handmaiden of like the ideology that brings a pre-existing idea into the reality of the, the city but to, yeah, to, I, I guess we we I, I guess quite often people kind of take um archetypes like you know the um the isocon flats or yeah. you know yeah you know, these kind of real paradigms of systems for living that that kind of whole the, mm -hmm. the, you know the very idealistic modernist um Kind of schemes and there's also a, a polish uh, architect called monica not art, artist called monica sasnowska that looks quite a lot of these very utopian um mid-century housing estates and the idea that they will come with these ideals built into the architecture um and i guess it's it's somewhat in a in a very different way to andrea but kind of looks at the disintegration of that and the collapse of that um priya one of the things i wanted to talk to you about was that the I guess the issue of ideals and maybe or, or preconceptions of even like the definition of what or who an architect should be, which I think haunts many people who kind of like try to exist under the quite large umbrella of what architecture could possibly be, but the kind of like the, the terrible idea of what like success might look like or what you might have to look like in order to achieve success um and maybe that's one of the kind of the, the problems that architecture faces is, is the sort of narrow conception of of what it might possibly be or, or be made up of yeah um i mean i guess the idea of success in architecture is often judged according to whether you've built an actual building or not and actually that can happen quite late in an architect's career as I was quite surprised to find out when I started reporting on architecture unlike for an, an artist um, but actually experimental architecture exists beyond that um, paradigm in so many different ways from experimental installations to ideas about and theories about architecture to objects because architects don't just make buildings um, you know architects make furniture they make all sorts of things and um, 
in fact, I spent my last couple of weeks interviewing architects and designers about their contribution to manufacturing PPE and other vital equipment. Um, and I think they've kind of shown that you don't need to be judged according to conventional parameters of architecture to be contributing to civic life or whatever you think architecture should do, but to make do something meaningful, to make a meaningful contribution. You know, I spoke to um, an architect who's brought together a whole collective of practices um, to basically 3D print um, a part of, um, of a mask that is necessary for PPE in order for it to be then put into supply chain and have other bits added to it to be used in the front line of hospitals. Um, and these architects have basically been able to reskill overnight um, from using machines that would otherwise be um, used for model making in order to make an entirely new thing. And they've been able to do this in a matter of days and weeks and make literally thousands and tens of thousands of these things. Um, yeah, so I think the idea of what architecture can contribute is perhaps too narrow. Um, and I think that that can lead to quite an exclusionary culture in which only architects who have access to the power structures and of course the capital in order to build a building are celebrated um, for their work. Um, whereas there are a lot of loads of smaller fringe practices internationally, not just in Europe and in the US doing really interesting things and they may not make their first building now or in five years time, but hopefully they will eventually. And I think until that happens, um, it, it, it's really difficult for the canon of architecture or the way in which we judge success in architecture to really diversify. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I, for me, it's always like the, the idea that architecture would be defined by the acts of making buildings. It's like such a, it seems such a pointless like definition of architecture but which is it, it, it always much richer than that you could say really you know what is architecture well, it's, it's more like publishing books maybe it's more like making films maybe it's more like making drawings um i want to shout out to to sean in the audience i don't know if you're actually watching sean um can you can you give us a sign of life if you're if you're there i'm here sean i wanted to drag you into the discussion um because I remember we can't too many uh, unfortunate things in my life. So. Well, this is true. This is true. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Um, but I wanted to talk to you because, um, at least in terms of your kind of, uh, uh, let's say, your statement, maybe not in the actual reality, you you made this sort of relatively big gesture of saying, "I'm never going to do architecture again," and I know how much how hard that you and I and Charles worked to. You know, I'd like to get to do some buildings eventually after like, you know, 15, 20 years or something like that. And then you especially said, no, architecture is impossible under current regimes. And oh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, like, well, um, of course, of, of course, it turns out I was lying. Yeah, well, I know. I said that. As ever. Because, um, I ended up doing quite a lot of architecture. Um, I think it goes back, you know, I think it's some of the discussions here are, are pertinent to that question. Um, there's an interesting thing about architecture in that it has its place in the kind of history of art. So that, you know, you can pick up books about the history of art and they will contain a section about architecture and there's a kind of correspondence between 
periods in art and periods in architecture. There's a Baroque period in art. There's a Baroque period in architecture. There's a, a neoclassical period in art. There's a neoclassical period in arch architecture. And there's a, there's a modernist period in art. And there's a modernist period in architecture and so on. So that's kind of one way in which architecture is uh, understood uh, as a kind of, uh, I suppose, a sort of visual um, medium uh, that's presented in magazines and so on. And I suppose, you know, a lot of the stuff that we were interested in um, and that I'm interested in is that side of it. I mean, I wouldn't deny it. I'm kind of interested in visual things. Um, and so I've veered between art and architecture for a long time. But at the same time, architecture is interesting as buildings because, and I think this touches on what a lot of other people are saying, because it also exists in a completely other way as a kind of disinterested backdrop um, to people's lives. And we don't occupy um, the city always looking around, or I mean, normal people don't, architects might, always looking around, um, treating the city as a kind of artwork that you're always looking at the composition of building facades and so on and so forth. So there's this kind of quite strange, um, I suppose, dislocation between those two kind of ideas about architecture. And I think architects are generally taught to be more biased towards that it's a form of visual culture uh, thing. And I think from the point of view of how that then operates in the context of trying to do buildings, is that it's very, very difficult to do buildings that are groundbreaking or challenging anything that is, has gone before. Um, I, several of the grey hairs I have are as a direct result of spending many years of trying to do that. And um, so I, I think I think there's a one of the things I think I wanted to say about the, the type modern archi architects are rubbish. Uh, the, the title of the talk is that it's bloody hard to be a good architect. Really, really, really difficult. I mean, it's hard the enough to be a bad architect. Yeah. <laughs> it is, yes. The forces ranged against you in terms of just getting the opportunity to do it, getting it past the planners, persuading a client to do something that is, you know, not 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 very conservative. And so, I, I would make a plea to to appreciate good architect and I know we're caught up in power structures I know we're sometimes very arrogant we have a strange sort of combination of arrogance and um, sort of terror of being seen arrogant we always want to be seen to be kind of very politically um, kind of right on and doing the right thing um, but it's, it's really hard to do it and I think when you see buildings that are decent buildings even if they've got flaws you should appreciate the fact that somebody's you know they've gone through blood sweat and tears to make that happen and not just architects everybody else is involved in the process of putting buildings up so i think my, my claim of not doing architecture and again it's sort of uh, the, the issue of mental health uh, not doing architecture has been very good for my mental health <laughs> i think is a sort of short way of 
doing that because it's so difficult, so difficult. And I, I have tremendous admiration for anyone who does anything half decent in this culture. Mark, can Mark, I ask? Oh, oh go, go ahead, Andrea. Yeah. So I just have a, a thought about this and it ties in with um, what Priya was saying, I think, or Hati um, before, around what do we value as a society and what is seen as worthy of our consideration. And I think in my last film, where I filmed in a place called Nomadic Community Gardens, I don't know if anyone of you has been in there, it was just off of Brick Lane. And it was a self-built um, environment, a bit like the um, the gardens which were destroyed during the, the manor house allotments during the Olympic Park um, and it got relocated. So it was a really unruly, beautiful, self-made space. And you couldn't say that that was informed architecture, but it was in a way, what is it then if it's not also something that's built um, as a means to show or express individuality or necessity, let's say. Um, and, and I think these are the kind of bigger questions I have, like it's so, because that's what relates to the films that, for example, Mark and I make. For us, it's very difficult, first of all, to get the funding. Um, I would love to have, and I could really use much more funding than I do have with the films that I make and so could Mark. So we have to work on the margins because we um, have chosen to have a certain process, I guess, in place. And but there is a value, there, there is a system which acknowledges that, I think maybe more so than in architecture, I just don't know. So that's a question I guess that I have to you. Um, how, much, how much do you have to have gone through in order to be recognized uh, or something to be recognized as having value within architecture? When you're looking for somewhere, how much of a role does like an aesthetic play in the kind of, you could say the sort of politics of what you're working on? I'm thinking like, um, I was thinking back to, Back to A Clockwork Jerusalem, which was the show that um, uh, Sean and, and Charles and I and um, a bunch of other people made for the Venice Biennale, because it was coming up on people's feeds today on social media, making me feel very alone, not with lots of like-minded people. Um, uh, part of the research there was looking at the relationship of, I suppose, like kind of art and politics and architecture and places and visions of society. And one of those places was Thamesmead. And one bit of research was looking at how Stanley Kubrick looked for locations for, for making that film. And of course, you know, later on, the architecture of a place like Thamesmead becomes associated with a certain kind of antisocial behavior. Now, the research that we did revealed not at all. It was because he thought it was an amazing piece of design. And, you know, we know, all know how um, kind of fastidious Stanley Kubrick's eye was. And he was seeing work done by, you know, local authority architects or GLC architects, um, uh, municipal work that was like, you know, of a standard for Kubrick, which is quite incredible. So we, in our tiny way, we tried to write that, that wrong. But it also made me feel like the, the, yeah, the role of the sort of aesthetics of a place, and maybe the, we're talking about expressions of, individuality within the city or something like that how much does that does that kind of inform what makes a great place to make a film yeah i mean i, think, I mean for me it's really important i mean you know if somebody's talking about certain if you're interested in certain themes then you know working in a visual medium those and i don't think that filmmakers do this well let's say documentary filmmakers do this enough in my view they tend to focus on the issue and the, for me it's you know the visual quality of the film is really important um 
you know, like you say, those, those the choosing of those environments are really crucial to allow the expression of the themes that you're that one is interested in. And um, and it comes down to very small things. You know, when I, I remember making a film in the Square Mile, and it was really important for me when we met one particular character who I'd seen on the street during the research. Uh, you know, kind of stereotypical city worker. He had a pinstripe suit. He was there smoking a cigar at lunchtime, and that's how I saw him in the research. And he was standing in the uh, outside the fire exit of one of the just by the Lloyd's building. You know, and I and you see things like and you think, well, there's something. And I, you know, when I got talking to him, I understood that he was actually a kind of working class bloke from Dagenham and Bark, Barking and Dagenham, whose father told him to go work in the city when he was a kid, and he was he was selling insurance there and um and he hated being there and, and therefore he wanted to talk to me and be in the film and you know that first image of him there on the street smoking dwarfed by that building and the oppressive sense of that informed a lot of the aesthetic of the rest of the film so i think it's um if you're trying to express character stories without that setting they're simply not as powerful you know i mean netflix have a way of doing things at the moment where all their, all their documentaries are, you know, the contributors are shoved in a studio and then they just use, the, you know, the director shoot additional material and it's basically interviews and cutaways to some pretty images. And I find it so boring and dull and corporate, frankly, you know. And the reason why they do it is because they often, if you look at the, a lot of the films, they're often backstories so they can control the script, they can control the narrative, they can hit the sort of three act structure at the right point and, you know, and they get to control the the film um and it's it's very unexciting you know it's it's like what you're talking about how you know how sort of architectural practice can become stifling and make your hair go gray well if you're making films in you know with, for those corporations it's the same thing you know and um if you free yourself of that even if you're working with much less money you know you're then free to really you know hang out and and create a film in another way and that's sort of you know, essential for me. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that I pay as much attention as to somebody like Stanley Kubrick, who has complete control of the design of the film because he's working with huge budgets and making, you know, uh, fic complete fiction. But it's still something that I take very seriously in, in the work. It's also interesting that, to see his like early documentary photos, though, like the, just the guy looking at the city, taking pictures, yeah. Uh, yeah. like like any of us do these days. Um, I know that um, these talks get a big architecture crowd. Um, are people making architecture? I don't know if that's the case today, but do you feel jealous seeing, you know, Priya and Hetty who get to write about stuff or make shows about things, Mark and Andre who makes, get, get to make films, or Nick who gets to make films and also reinvent the possibility of what land is. Um, do you feel sick as you're kind of chained to your metaphorical drawing board having to do another door schedule for a asshole commercial architect working for an even more asshole um commercial developer do you wish you could throw it all away and pick up your iphone and spend two months in a lift <laughs> oh, once you can socially distance in a lift obviously I don't know, Bobby, how do, we, how, do, how do we get people to respond? 
Can you poke I think them? We'll have to, yeah, I think we'll have to just, uh, people want to say in the comments if they'd like to <laughs> okay. say that they're jealous and they're sick of making toilets. <laughs> um, like, I guess also like, you know, do you guys feel trapped by the roles which you've cast yourselves in? Like, do you wish you weren't making another bloody film, but you kind of have to because that's your career? You know, Hetty, do you wish you, oh my God, I can't be bothered to write anything else Priya same like Nick uh so well, I guess you are in reinventing what the possibilities are I'll button here a second because um I will say I'm actually a little bit jealous of the likes of Hetty and Mark Pryor and everyone Andrea because um sometimes we forget as architects that there is part of our training which is quite exhaustive Sean's right it, it's tough trying to be an architect we have to learn we have to read we have to listen a lot and sometimes yeah you feel you feel as if you're constrained and you want a little bit of freedom to do things that you might if you do have a creative um, background want to explore more sometimes you have to pay the rent you did that by basically for a while at least giving up architecture and starting a restaurant no? <laughs> we did that while doing architecture ah, okay yeah but i mean that 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 to me was quite an interesting one because i remember i think it was an la critic jeff kipnis when i when i uh, did my year out in la and um, i remember reading one of his things or listening to a lecture and it always resonated and it was like it's not enough to do something do something else yeah um, I understood that as always look for other things and new things to do and to involve yourself with, not sort of sit back and wait for architecture or an architecture career to be laid out in a plate for you. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder how much this is about controlling the control of the canvas to a certain degree. I mean, everybody in the world has to find their, their place and what they're interested in. Um, and you know, filmmaking is no easier than architecture. I'm sure, as as probably maybe being an artist, uh, sort of in your in your studio, locked away, um, su sustaining your own creativity. But it's it's a sort of a broader question, I think, of what is the, what are the results of what we what we think we're doing. I mean, I wouldn't have a problem with a lot of architecture if I didn't believe that a lot of architects feel that they are doing some there's a there's a there's a nobility to to what they're doing, and and um, there's obviously a lot of, uh, there's also a lot of kidology about what they're doing. Um, the question for me is how do you, how do you find a place where you can actually do something with a degree of meaning? And, um, you know, uh, there's money in all walks of life is a controlling factor, but I wonder whether architects are more willing to accept that. Um, I'm not suggesting they do. It's a provocation rather than suggesting they do. But uh, as an architect working within a, a moneyed environment where clearly you're using other people's money and you'll be commissioned to do work, whether that actually gives the results that we want. And if you're talking about an I sort of not a utopianism, but certainly an idea of a better future, whether we think we're going to achieve that going through the systems that are in place. Um, Lee, you've been a you've been busy in the old chat, and uh, I think some of us know that you approach um the act of making architecture um, in a both conventional and unconventional way 
simultaneously often quite connected to, to, to place. Sometimes it looks like it might even be art, but do you think it is? Are you there, Lee? Muted. Lee, you are there. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, I've been on the... Nice balustrade you got there. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> it's, you're, on a, you're on a spaceship. You're on a kind of gothic spaceship. Yeah, it's a, it's a feature of my new Zoom life. This <laughs> grade. Um, it's paper. It's, it's now, I identify as that balustrade. It's kind <laughs> of uh, a motif. I just sit here talking to people on the internet. Um, I was, uh, th thanks for bringing me in just as I was about to go to the fridge and get a beer, Sam. That's, oh, sorry. Uh, but, um, yeah, art. Um, one thing, one, one thing I'd mentioned in the comments was about, I suppose, the way in which art has different timescales often in which it can be conceived and considered. So, you know, the idea of an artist in residence was something that in a lot of um, marginalised communities I've worked in was seen as very accepted, that actually you would fund an artist to be in that place for an extended period of time and use their practice as a mode of exploration. And the idea of an architect in residence is someone who could just be there participate in the nature of place, consider its very particular dynamics and then conceive potential responses at a variety of scales seemed very alien. And so I started realizing that maybe the best way to get paid was to go looking for art funding, you know, because there wasn't necessarily money within architecture as a kind of profession or a discipline or a culture that would support me to spend an extended period of time in a place trying to get a, get a feel for it um, and so quite a bit of work that I have done which is as a response to to various aspects of place you know could could be described as art or generated through more of a, an, a something that's recognizable as an arts-based practice versus an architecture-based practice and also because it's been paid for by arts funding and so I've had to justify it to a funder um, as artwork as well um, and, art, and arts funding tends to not like to fund things that sound like architecture because um, everyone thinks that we drive around in BMWs and make a shitload of money and do all right so you know there's a kind of a, a, a cultural um, myopic vision of what the architect is that also maybe prevents us from you know, crossing over into other disciplines because quite frankly, sometimes those disciplines would rather we'd fuck off and stick to our own as well. Uh, so, you know, yeah, that, that's also part of the discussion. I think mean, that's, that's an interesting point about like, you know, kind of definitions, siloing of different like creative forms of practice. I think 6A had a residency at the ICA. That's how the kind of relatively minimal work that which they did there happens. They had a little studio upstairs in a small room um but it is was an interesting more interesting approach to how you might commission a piece of architecture rather than the sort of wham bam slight visit go back do a sketch and then implement it um a, di a different way of conceiving how one might uh like engage with a with a place or a series of activities or or a community albeit um the community of the ica which like clearly is a community um um, but I, yeah, it feels to me that often the, the kind of definitions of 
is it art, is it architecture, is it mm. even filmmaking, um, uh, become like problematic. I know I've often found difficult to, you know, someone says, ask you, what, what do you do? You go, oh, I'm an architect, have you designed anything? No, no, definitely not. What are you working on? Mm, like a basketball made out of clay. You know, and they're like, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Um, you know, like the, the, the preconceptions of what uh, any of the, any discipline might be, I think can be stifling. Also that they exist within us, however much we might try to um, like kind of liberate ourselves from them. You could say, you know, kill the, kill the cop inside that polices our own professional behavior and, and stops us becoming the kinds of person that we could become or making the kind of work that we could, um, we could make. Uh, sorry, yeah, emotional moment. I, su I suppose one of the questions is in architecture, who pays for us to play? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, what you're talking about there, Sam, is kind of finding that space to just make something, to produce something, to, you know, for, for the delight in learning through that kind of process. And that's only possible at certain scales. An artist kind of get to navigate those scales maybe on a much more regular basis than, than architects do. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, you know, we, we kind of very much don't get paid by our clients to kind of play quite the opposite. You know, we're kind of that, that, that kind of learning through doing and learning through experimentation is something that increasingly <clears throat> no one actually wants to pay for in architecture. And maybe it's because we've not done a good enough job of articulating the value of that. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, Hetty, is there freedom outside? Do artists have any freedom or are they trapped? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a weird thing yeah. that architects have this real bee in their but I think you've, you carry such guilt. Yeah. Um, and I think probably you should all be married to psychoanalysts. Of course, we've all got psychoanalysts as mothers. I don't know, but I, I, I'm, you, I've, I, I feel like I've heard this conversation about like, yeah, oh, God, you know, I studied for seven years to be an architect, but I don't actually build things. Can you forgive me? <laughs> you know, I mean, Dayan talks about it a lot. And I think, you know, I've, I've definitely heard, you know, Dayan and Paolo Antonelli and people talking about this whole thing, this whole idea of, you know, I don't know what you call it, conceptual design or conceptual architecture. And I think, can we just and accept that there is such a thing as conceptual architecture? And let's just accept that it exists and it's a good thing and you don't all have to be out there building buildings. I and mean, there's so much kind of flagellation that goes on about in your community about feeling like you need to be out there shoving great big, you know, great big uh, permanent structures up there. I mean, I don't know, maybe, you know, if, obviously if we accept that you can be a conceptual architect, maybe we should also accept people being conceptual surgeons and conceptual doctors as well after their long training. But um, that's for another discussion. Many of the artists I know are like just moan all the time about their gallerist and like what they've been asked to make more of when they're gods like you know like the is lee dreaming of a paradise that doesn't really exist hetty do you think that what well i mean i think it you know that there there are there are very different ways of being an artist you can be an artist that satisfies the market and at which point to a certain extent i think that comes with an understanding that you're going to accept what the market's dictating to you and that yeah you do have to make 43 different versions of that impeccably square above the sofa number or you're an architect artist who's making the art you're interested in that's not necessarily i mean i get there are some people who get to do both but i think this also comes back to nick's point about do we all have to live in a city as well mm. and if you live in london 
you yeah it's very very difficult to have a practice as an artist that's not conforming on some level to to the market because it's very very expensive to live here there's very little space um there needs to be more studios more accessible studios there need to be places for people to live and work in london that doesn't mean that they have to be making incredibly commercial work i think if you then go outside of london you get very different ways of being an artist very different models of being an artist and i think this is this whole idea of of different models of, of you know different models of making things different models of living is something we're all going to confront now you know uh, exactly as nick was discussing earlier there are all kinds of questions that are coming up now about you know does this old system have to continue is that what we can we move away from london does it all have to be so driven by this kind of constant acceleration in the market is that is that like um you know ruskin all over again william blake all over again the brotherhood of ruralists all over again well yeah i mean to is a certain extent yeah one of the last things i was working on before this uh, i was writing something about sustainability and art and i interviewed Frances morris from tate his director of tate modern and she was very very upfront about um about the sustainability of the the model for the museum and the fact that it's all kind of to do with you know they're collecting more and more they want more and more people to come in and she goes i think it's just not sustainable and i worry that future generations are going to look back on our acquisition practice as being absolutely disgusting the fact that we're buying more and more stuff that doesn't get shown and that this whole model of wanting more and more you know that you're judged as a success because you have more and more people coming in through the door mm. And museums are judged as success by constantly expanding and paying for more architects to come and build bigger bits of their buildings. They can get more and more people in. Is 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 ultimately unsustainable and a very poor way of practicing and a very poor way of, um, of of engaging with art. So I think there was already a, a sense that things needed to change. That actually, we're on a we're on a difficult trajectory. We were on a difficult trajectory. Yeah, and um, what what could they do once they stop taking oil money, or they stop taking opioid money? Like, but would it be so bad if there was just like you know someone playing around with a few leftover cardboard boxes in the turbine hall? Maybe if our if that's what we thought that's what culture looked like, it would be totally fine. We wouldn't need to have such expensive, spectacular things. And maybe that's the same with. With architecture the model we've thought of is exactly that one you were talking about steve which was like oh hi i'm daniel leafskins and i do these weird drawings and 15 years later i'm on the cover of like you know um new york magazine uh the week after donald trump wearing my cowboy boots and uh you know in front of a massive model of the building i'm building in downtown manhattan like yeah we don't that's not a model we need to follow but why no, like, why do we need to do that Exactly, but but just going back to some of Hetty's points, not the sustainability ones that kind of throws in a different angle that, than what I was wanting to follow up on, is that, yeah, I get the fact that, yeah, art, artists, um, you know, got other issues between town and country and um, all these sort of things and the market and everything. But as Kaz Facey once said in their, um, I think her second or third Negroni talk, architects can't dance or don't dance. Rubbish. And um, I don't know, Sam, it's a question for you. Can architects dance? 
I've been seen, you know, with my moves on the dance floor. I've been, <laughs> I've been seen. Prove us wrong. There, there, there's another so I've, I've spotlight there's you. A... You can do that now. That's fine. <laughs> Thanks, Bobby. There's yes. another <laughs> another rub to to that point, and that that that, that the fact that is the more I get to know a lot of artists, and Hetty, you can jump in here and tell me I'm talking crap. Is that they can combine a lot of creative types of thinking, including filmmakers and, and, and all sorts of painters, sculptors, and so forth. Um, have a laugh, have a few drinks, and talk about all sorts of things that can really inspire you. And sometimes I think architects have that difficulty in inspiring people. It goes back to what Sean was saying, it's difficult being an architect. Everybody expects so much. Don't they just, don't they just? I mean, I think maybe the idea of what inspiring means is different in the context of architecture. I think when you go into a gallery and you are there with the purpose of seeing an installation, it's very different from inhabiting a space for like your entire life. And that might be a series of different spaces and you might relate to them in different ways. But I think there is obviously an emotional connection there, whether you call that inspiring or not. It, is a connection which we might not acknowledge or unless you're interested in architecture you might not think about in day-to-day -day life. Um, I don't think that necessarily means it's not moving or inspiring or yeah. I guess it's, it's also like in what in what way like is the forecourt of um, Highbury Magistrates Court you know like at the bottom of the Holloway Roads like sort of in arch architectural terms or civic terms you would not say that is like an amazing was it interesting mark you used the, the word piazza sort of the least piazza like space you could possibly be in the bottom of the a1 um uh but nevertheless of course that you know there's this the space in front of a courthouse regardless of the architecture architectural style or arrangement they might have has such an intrinsic kind of ideological form spatially or its relationship to power it's the way in which it controls you know the occupation of that space and the different roles that people are given as they walk into into a building like that like that's quite interesting because in a way that's stuff which is outside of the control of let's say the person who's designing it like courts exist as a model like you can't turn up with your design for a courthouse and say hey i thought we should do it like a big you know climbing frame instead like it there will there is never that kind of freedom like architecture is a sort of a way of like formalizing ritual you could say even you know like standing stones at avebury are a way of formalizing some kind of ritual which we don't quite understand imp imposing a material and spatial organization on the land which enables certain kinds of you know, human behavior to to happen architect's role is not to like reinvent society at every single opportunity but maybe just to sort of implement it but that leaves that meaning that kind of possibility of how one might interpret it or how one might kind of work within that space much more open and in that sense i feel like there's a certain sort of freedom in the way that um filmmakers or writers um uh can can look at the city because it's not professional in the sense of like having to deliver that particular function but rather consider the consequences of that thing entity um material object 
um, form of behavior, that kind of thing. Um, uh, are there any more questions in the, in the chat? Sorry, I've lost track of it. I think, did we have one from um, Elise, Elise Bell? Um, what's that? Hi. Ah, it was, I think it was more jumping on what Tammy had said in the chat just about that. It's from, I think many, especially younger architects would love the opportunity for architects and residents and to have that more kind of collaborative practice with the arts than they might do in a kind of commercial practice. But from the landscape that there is at the moment, it feels like it's not the architects who need persuading, but, and I know public practice is a great example of how it can be successful, but budgets not being there, um, commissioners pay potentially not being fully on board. So I wonder if it's a case of bringing these conversations out of architecture circles and into, um, into, into funding from these institutions. I guess it's like, yeah, what institutions and how, what, what will their funding possibilities be in the, in the near future? Because it hasn't been great in the recent past either. Um, I guess it's also like, how do we configure ourselves in relation to, let's say, money, power, and the market? Like, do we want to imagine ourselves that we could be, we could be the Trojan horse. We could be the one who can work within the system, but flip it. Or, you know, is that just a, like a myth that we can tell because it will kind of, you know, assuage our guilt as we pick up our, you know, um, pay packet that's basically stolen from the public purse um or should we you know have a much stricter relationship should we say no you can't come and fucking talk at these fucking events fuck off you know you're involved in the destruction of the city and the public good so get out of here i don't know like what what do, what do people feel about about that like well, how do we configure practice in relation to the situations that we find ourselves and how ridiculously um kind of hardline might we want to be or, or 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 do we think maybe we should soft shoe even more can i say something as a non-architect um but i think that when we had uh, the first attempt of redevelopment i mean i'm in particular interested within film within art in a in a really grassroots um, rethinking of what practice is and have always been involved in that because of my own background perhaps but I think we can't but think of a decolonized approach in a way and what does that truly mean uh, also an approach within architecture that's accessible to people where accessibility is not just a tag-along um, and these kind of innovations of um, architects that also have perhaps um, the possibility to live within the spaces they're designing um, makes a lot of sense to a lot of people, right? And so we, in our own experience, we had an architect who, who designed our new estate um, in a long-term engagement, really proper public engagement with people and showing people lots of examples. It's almost like how I make a film, I show people lots of films, so we have a shared language, right? Um, but then that wasn't funded, that was too expensive. So the idea of now 
we have a new opportunity, it seems to me, like because of the way in which environmental destruction is such a vast issue and it's up to all of us to campaign. We, we have to become campaigners in a way, collectively and architects uh, alongside all these other um, disciplines that have to campaign together for a different future. I actually think we have to start at some point and it's um, a lot of work, but it's the only way we can actually shift the relationship of power yeah. and demand some changes because otherwise it's only ever driven by developers, right? Yeah, I mean, it feels to me that what we're trying to invent is a, something which has existed before, like, you know, models that produced such amazing places like the biker wall, um, you know, at such scale, were, you know, kind of really attempting to, to deal with exactly those kinds of issues. And that's, that was the future which we decided uh, wasn't for us. And we chose a different, different path, which I suppose then, you know, kind of, if it hasn't worked once before, what, what, are we idiotic to think that it will work a second time around when the odds are even more stacked against that kind of world, Andrea? Mr. Finch, did you have your hand up? Would I ignore that? I, I did because um, I don't like the uh, tone of this conversation. <laughs> and the reason I don't like it is because <clears throat> we have this extraordinary opportunity to rethink everything from the spatial relationships of people themselves in domestic, uh, civic, and uh, kind of communal circumstances of all sorts. Uh, we have the requirement to rethink the relationship between people and the buildings they inhabit, the spaces, the volumes, the sequencing, the areas, neighborhoods, and communities. And everyone's talking about as though, oh my God, you know, we're all doomed or alternatively the world owes me a living actually the last time that we considered a situation like this in the uk was of course in 1945 that's why we got the 1947 town and country planning act which by the by the way is why you can't just go and rent a bit of land and build a house on it so there's some big issues that have been covered in the course of this conversation which i think could be drawn together in a rather more cheery way but the first thing I'd like to say is I believe that fat, at least conceptually, should reform themselves. And they could run some wonderful programs which are not about doing the agonizing and sometimes balls aching business of actually delivering buildings, but having what they always did best in the first place, which is have great conceptual ideas and see how they might run out and influence the whole world of architecture. They don't need oh, to Oh, you know, we've, we've reformed. We've reformed. Good. We got offered a lot of money by a German university. Me and, me and Sean and Charles are literally rolling in it, um, peddling our ideas. Well, uh, good. welcome to you. It's cabaret time. And I just hope that the programme they're writing for you, paying all these, um, you know, ersatz Deutschmarks, uh, will make it all seem worthwhile. I think the point is this is the period of extraordinary opportunity for creatives of all sorts to make propositions about how we want to live and work and play for the future, brought on by the most extraordinary circumstances. And instead of moaning about it, we should be embracing it and saying, what did we learn from uh, the modernists who've been trashed in the title of this debate, who scarcely been mentioned? Well, firstly, if modernists uh, are rubbish, I think it'd be more accurate to say were rubbish, uh, since modernism is a hundred year old historical style. 
if the idea is that today's architects are, are rubbish, I don't think they're any more rubbish than any generation of architects have been in the past. What they are uh, uh, confronted with uh, is an extraordinary opportunity to rise to a challenge. And the way to do that is to think about program, is to, think, is to stop worrying about power structures, because you know what? Power structures exist everywhere. Even in anarchist societies, somebody says, where well, you can't have your allotment because it's next to somebody else's. And that's not where you can build your little shack because it's going to interfere with mine. And by the way, if 100 people want to do a little hut for each other, who exactly is going to pay for the plumbing and, and drainage? And all that sort of stuff which architects know how to deal with. So I think the point of this is to actually raise a large Negroni, stop moaning, grab the opportunities which will not only be available, which society will be expecting from architects and all the other creatives who play a part uh, in developing our built environments. And the last thing you want to do is moan about, oh, well, it's a power structure. You know, would it be different if it was Jeremy Corbyn as opposed to Boris Johnson? The answer is, from a structural point of view, no, it wouldn't. Um, and if you want to know how command economies work, which is where we got the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act from, well, look at the history of all the countries that given that stuff up. They gave it up for good reasons. We do not live in a modernist world. We're all, to use the phrase, we're all postmodernists now. Um, and I think all the better for it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. And um, Priya, you just made a definitive statement in the chat. Which I realised it was 8.30 and I thought, I can't leave the session without yeah. saying this, being the only person to follow the panel and mm -hmm. somebody who generally shouts about this probably a bit too much. But I haven't today, so I just wanted to quickly say, at least, um, that um, I, I think I spoke about experimental architecture being interesting and a place in which um, interesting ideas are being experimented in the way that they are in art. Um, and I think that that is where we see more plural forms of cultural expression thriving by architects from more diverse backgrounds than those represented on our skyline. Um, and I think that those ideas, I'd like to see those ideas filter through into the mainstream and to see those architects being more instrumental in determining our built environment in the future. Um, yeah, that's what I wanted to say. I mean, I would say, Priya, like if, if Paul's right and we are all postmodernists, that's exactly what the postmodernist project was about, was about pluralism, was about like diversity of, of points of view, was about uh, worlds which are able to coexist, um, you know, simultaneously without dogma, and, and I think that's, you know, that in a sense is is the the sort of optimistic program of of postmodernism, I mean, often derided for being a stylistic thing, but actually politically, that's what it dreamt of. Yeah, I think postmodernism was a really positive step forward in terms of celebrating hybridity um, and diverse forms of cultural expression. I do think that we hopefully have moved a step beyond that now. Yeah. In, in that I'd like to see a less binary approach to diverse cultural, to diverse cultures in our, represented in architecture and to see them filtered into mainstream and not be considered appropriated, which is what they were in, 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 in postmodernism. I'm not saying they weren't celebrated, but it was, um, postmodernism was mainly a Western canon 
Um, and I tried, in fact, during my RCA thesis about a decade ago, to create an equivalent theory for South Asian design, um, which is sort of going through a period of celebrating different forms of hybridity now, which I saw is parallel to what was happening with modernism. But what I came to realise was I don't think the word postmodernism can be used to describe design internationally. I think it's very much rooted in European and Western design, although it celebrates hybridity, it's very much a phenomenon that's rooted here. Um, that doesn't make it bad or something we shouldn't pursue. I just feel that we live in a global world, as we've discovered now that that global world has been put on hold, how difficult it is to operate. Um, yeah, it would be great to see us work in more hybrid ways. Indeed, indeed. Nick, you seem to be talking here in the chat about like yearning for the golden age of the 1947 Town Country Planning Act. You don't think so? Yeah, I think Paul seems to be yearning for the golden age of the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act. You seem to be accusing me of harking back to William Blake. And you seem to want to dismiss... That an accusation? That's like a, such a that's an honorific term, I would say. You seem to want to dismiss people who live off the grid as somehow going back to the Stone Age or going back to the naturists, you know, the 19th century romantics. But they didn't have mobile broadband in the 19th century. And uh, what I'm suggesting is both extremely practical and what hundreds and thousands of people currently want to do. That's just what people actually want to do more than they want to live in some pokey little two bedroom flat in Dalston, uh, commuting to work to make money at a job they don't even like. No, Nick, my, my history of British modernism, which maybe connects you, you and Paul together, is, is a history which always looks backwards in order to invent the future, which is why you have a futurist like William Blake, who invents a pagan past of Albion as a sort of dream of a, of a new Jerusalem, which is why you have William Morris, radical inventor of a new world, but using medieval crafts, which is why you have the architects of places like um, Thamesmead and Cumbernauld looking at the picturesque in order to create a kind of late modernist uh, kind of Baroque uh, kind of expression. Like all of those ideas are a combinations of visions of the past, idealized visions of the past in order to invent the future. And I think that's a very kind of British attitude. It's a very difficult for us to imagine a kind of cold, compassionate future of the you know, kind of that, that Kraftwerk might imagine. For us, it always comes through a sort of filtered through pastoralism. And in no way would I, would I say that's a bad thing because I do believe in these kind of pluralist ideas that you can be both futurist and neo-neolithic simultaneously. Like, uh, probably the first futurists were like neolithic people in the first place. Like a, a, a hand axe is the most futuristic kind of object you could possibly imagine. I think the... Um... I have huge sympathy for the idea of uh, building one-off homes, uh, which don't have to be sort of millionaire, Piers Taylor uh, status at all. And in fact, at CAVE, we talked about a program where you would say, well, you could uh, take any field anywhere and have an absolute right to build a home on it, possibly subject, if you were going to say there was no aesthetic control on it, subject to it not being visible. Um, from uh, from a public road 
And of course, that anarchist idea of, well, let people just have their plot and let their build, I think is incredibly attractive and I don't object to it at all. My point about the 1947 Town and Country Planning Act is that the people who introduced that, um, you know, they were socialists, they believed in a better world. They weren't doing it because they were trying to restrict land supply. And of course, the idea that it's difficult to, that you can only buy land and not rent it is completely ludicrous. The entire history of agriculturists relied on tenant farmers uh, and not owners. You know, the ownership of land is another matter entirely. And it could be that we have to have a really big debate uh, about the future of land as a whole and how we're going to use it uh, before we get to the point where we may have the expansion uh, of the individual home. But I mean, Nick, I'm, I'm kind of on your side. Um, it's just not that simple a thing to introduce. It always makes me think of um, the, the, the idea introduced in the magazine New Society in the late 60s, early 70s, non-plan, which, which was Rainer Bannum, Cedric Price, um, who was that? I can't remember, the editor of Paul, uh, Paul something, Paul, no, editor of New Society, a sociologist, which basically said, what would happen if you let people did what they want in their fields, behind hedgerows, reimagined um, Britain as this sort of like constable country, Turner country, that kind of thing. Um, and had, you know, basically it was like neon signs behind a hedgerow. That was the sort of vision of it. Um, the story is that that kind of sort of liberal anarchist idea eventually became Docklands and the sort of, you know, like lifting of planning restriction and so on and so forth. So I think non-plan was called Experiments in Freedom. So it was an idea about planning what would happen if you lifted the controls of planning and people did good things with it. Of course, you know, doc, I mean, I love going to Docklands, but I wouldn't want it everywhere. Um, <laughs> I think um, Docklands, Docklands might be emptying out quite soon. Uh, yeah, I always like it. I loved it when it was just built and it was empty. It was but I don't think the owners can place. really make, the owners can't really handle it empty. It's not much use to them. <laughs> No. Okay. And meanwhile, I think we might be entering the new era where people are doing exactly what they want behind the hedgerows. And <laughs> it'll be very hard to stop them because there are going to be so many of them. Hattie, you, you, you want to talk about this, maybe some ideas related to this? like um... Yeah, well, it seems to me that a lot of the things that Lee is talking about in terms of architecture and residence, which I think is mm. really great idea but I think it's important that it's architects that have the power to actually make a difference to the built environment and also Andrea's work and Mark's work spending a lot of time uh, in built environments and in, in between spaces kind of all come through to a similar point which is that it's understanding architecture as, uh, as, a, as a lived experience um, which perhaps isn't something that we that I, I mean I don't know I've not studied as an architect as an architect so I don't know you know, how much of this goes into the training as an architect, but to me, it also feeds into something that I think has become such an important issue now and has been obviously building for a long time, which is mental health. And I think we're all very aware of the impact that um, the arch that architecture and our lived environment has on mental health at the moment. And not to be, I mean, I'm sorry to bring this to something really hideous right now, but I go past Grenfell Tower quite a lot. And I was thinking today about and I go past the temporary school that the kids from Grunfell are now in, which is made up of porter cabins. Uh, and my, my, last, my son was in a school that was made up of porter cabins recently, and it's a horrible school environment to be in. You're just there with strip lights and these very 
you know, unpleasant architectural spaces. And just thinking about these kids that have been through uh, through Grenfell and then are going through this pandemic. And I don't know what home situations are in, whether some of them are still in temporary accommodation and, th and the impact that all of this is having on, on their mental health. And, and what a difference kind of, a, you know, a, a designing for an ongoing community has, what a difference thinking about the mental health impact of architecture will have on people. I, I'm just interested as architects how much this is a consideration and how much that kind of experience that Lee was talking about, that Andrea goes through, that Mark was talking about, of really experiencing a place as a lived environment goes into the consideration of planning um, living spaces. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, like, you could say, like, some forms of architecture, which are the, the sort of the kind of most soulless in some ways, most kind of like regimented are actually also the most sort of spiritual and like kind of like amazing human places to be. And I'm thinking of like, you know, modernists of Mies van der Rohe, for example, who was like, basically, oh, I can learn from how to build a factory, how to make these spaces, which are like, un-fucking believable, you know? Um, uh, and I'm, I'm wondering, like, I think our architects in general, I don't, I'm not going to speak for everybody, but like, of course we think about, what is a thing in the world and how will it be used? I don't know whether we need to always spend so much time with people. Like often architecture is a kind of, it's a challenge to people, you know, think of like modernism was a challenge to living. It was, it said you can't carry on living like you used to. You can't have your flowery wallpaper. If you go to live in the Villa Savoie, of course not everyone lived in the Villa Savoie, you've got to wash your hands when you walk into the building. Like maybe that's what we're going to have to do in the near future. Um, I don't know like it's interesting like what do we do how, how do architects re re relate to people to communities do we give people what they want definitely not as uh Sid Vicious said I've met the man on the Clapham omnibus and he didn't like him um so we're not just there to deliver either things which developers want politicians want or communities want we as architects have our own expertise we have like ideas about how the world should be so that's an interesting position like how do we interpret and i guess that's sort of like what i'm always interested in maybe the the, the kind of work that um that, that um andrea and mark do is because it's about interpretation of the city looking at the city looking for how you can understand stories not for like what the story that the, the stories which are given to to you like you know questions of what is a school what is a house those kinds of things, even to the point where Nick is like, you know, what can you do in a field? Like these are absolutely key architectural ideas which don't already or don't necessarily already exist. They may exist in relationship to, you know, kind of traditions and typologies and possibilities, though all those kinds of things. But I do agree with Paul's optimism that we can fuse all these different elements together to invent, you know, new possibilities. They might not be like maybe as radical as they were in 1924 but you know they will have their own character maybe we shouldn't worry if they're as important as they were in 1924 because maybe we shouldn't worry about being as important as Mies van der Rohe or Luca Buzio or being in a history book maybe there won't be any history books I don't know um so there's I think the idea that how we formulate the idea of the architects what your role is what your cultural position is what your kind of practical position is what your political position is absolutely absolutely up for grabs and I think that's why I you know, that's what I appreciate, Priya, from your point of view. It's like, yes, all of these things can be different to how they have been.
before. Sorry, I have slight trouble hearing all of that, but um, I heard you refer to me brilliant. Um, I think <laughs> I, was... I was mainly referring to, and I mentioned this to you earlier, but when I um, started covering architecture, I just remember Googling top 10 architects in the world. Because um, obviously this is the kind of content my publishers want me to produce now, and I'm trying to write about some more experimental stuff. So I Google it, and it's obviously the same 10 names that I, that just come up over and over and I'm wondering according to what have we come up with this list and it's obviously to do with like the big buildings that they've made the impact that those buildings have had and some of them are really important buildings but I just felt that yeah it was and I've worked in a number of different sectors talking about interdisciplinarity and stuff but I started out as a lawyer and I then did an MA at the RCA and I worked in museums at BNA and British Council and then now I'm doing this so I have this different perspective and I find architecture is just very culturally homogenous and when I'm trying to represent women equally in a magazine I often find myself saying to PRs and architecture practices can I is there a woman I can interview because you know my magazine is just very heavy in one demographic at the moment and I know it sounds like I'm making it really utilitarian and practical but it's a real cultural problem in architecture and it's just really important we acknowledge it because if we're talking about why modern architecture is rubbish I don't think it's necessarily I'm not saying it's rubbish but I think this is a fundamental problem and we need to acknowledge it we need to do something about it and these powerless of 10 great women in architecture which we've all been doing as journalists is great but we need we need to change the discipline we need to see more plural forms of expression in our skylines by different people who have different influences, who draw on different cultures, whose parents are from different places, because that's a society that we live in. That's what we are as a, as a people. Um, yeah, I guess coming into it as an outsider, it's just that's really, really stood out and been actually quite emotional for me as someone of hybrid background. Great, thank you. That sounds a very good summing up from you. Maybe I can go around. Um, other speakers, like if you've got any like final, final thoughts, Hattie. Um, uh, I. So I was just so I was really engaged with what Priya was saying. So I thought that was I thought she spoke so well. Then I think it's really important. But I mean, I, I guess it is this difficult thing. I made a kind of slightly flippant joke about you know if we have conceptual architecture, we accept conceptual surgeons and doctors. But I guess the point is that you guys do, train for a very long time. So it's it's. It's it it it's a more exclusive club than many other forms of um, creativity. I mean, I can learn the kazoo and decide I'm a musician and release a very bad punk track. Um, That's a lockdown ambition, Hetty. <laughs> yeah, number one before you know it, Sam. Mm. Um, you know, and I can declare myself an artist and be an artist. Whereas I think to be an architect, you know, there's all of this kind of witchcraft that you have to be inducted into that. It's possibly a little opaque to uh, the rest of us that have to live with your buildings or your city plans or your built environments. Um, so I mean, maybe maybe that needs to become less opaque. I don't know. Maybe that's part of the step forward. I think it's been really. I, I've been really interested to listen to what well, to see some of the stuff going on in the chat about this question of empathy. I mean, I think as Andrea will say, it's one thing to say, "Well, I live in a building." so I know what architecture is about. It's another thing to live on a housing estate and to have daily conversations with the residents that have really varied needs and very varied life experiences and demands. 
you know, I think you get a very different experience of what it's like living in a place if you're really engaging in, on that level. Thanks, Hetty. Is that what you would say, Andrea? Uh, yes, I think. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I think it's really crucial to. So there's, there, for me, there are two things which are really important. One is the um, the lack of diversity in relation to. Um, so, for example, our old council architecture, I mean, some of you will, all of you will know this, but our old council architecture was so unsexy. It was done by some council architect that um, didn't even have the name put onto the building, right? So that's why all these kind of uh, red brick neo-Georgian uh, flatted dwellings um, were slightly different, but they had an element of care and structure. So there was a value system within society that was still visible. Um, but that's also a complex value system because it was already not fully equal um, and it replicated a lot of the kind of social structures and it tried to appease certain um, unruliness that was expanding within society. So I think we haven't, you know, the, the way in which architecture also denies people the possibilities to thrive. So they're surviving within something, but they're not thriving. So if you're living in a lift, in an environment where you have a lift and you're wheelchair bound, which happens a lot, uh, around here you're housebound when the lift breaks down which happens frequently um, so there are all these kind of different registers also what architecture is and what it means to live within them and we had people here uh, without a lift that could never leave their house because they were in a wheelchair and they couldn't be rehoused on an emergency rehousing list because there was just no space for anyone to take their pet and a pet for some people is everything they have so it's not just architecture i think we have to really think about it as a societal shift and change towards a different way of society making uh, that takes these different disciplines forward but it goes with city planning it goes with right to access it goes with proper diversity proper inclusivity um, like a real radical shift around ecology and the cost of tearing something down rather than just adding to it and having maybe a more loopy architecture. Um, you know, those kind of things. So, and I, I just want to say just one last thing about one of the comments as well as in terms of uh, some people said we don't want to just give people what they want. We don't really know what people want, right? This has always been reduced down to such a binary. Um, what the television, uh, what television often does now, they make programs for the people and then they dumb down, like this argument of dumbing down. I actually really refuse that. I think even as a filmmaker who has to work slightly outside that, but my skill um, of making a film is acquired over many years of practicing and trying and testing and reading and teaching and, you know, so, and loads and loads of practice and, uh, loads of influences and inspiration by other people and a really deep thinking the same as with architecture and any other discipline learning an instrument well you have to practice over and over or maybe you don't want to learn it well that's also just as valid it's a different kind of thing right but what i'm trying to say is it's if people are informed enough people will make hopefully the choices uh together to go forward in a much more progressive way than we've been reduced to by financialization of our existence and i think now we have the chance to move forward together because of necessity and let's take the chance and actually have a real vision on all sorts of different levels for each other that's very optimistic and i don't know maybe there is something about the filmmakers viewpoint that you're always looking through a lens whereas architects are always looking zoomed in at like you know at the lift detail whereas people like you and people like um, Mark can, can look at what happens in the lift, which is maybe a different way of understanding um, the world. Mark, how, 
how do you feel? I think we can, you know, where I think I would consider myself, you know, so much more irresponsible compared to an architect in terms of, you know, if I make a film. Irresponsible. Irresponsible, yeah. Irresponsible. If I make a film, I don't have to think about, I have to think about the people in the film and if, they, if they're going to be, feel that they've been fairly portrayed. Um, and I hope that an audience will watch and be moved by the film in some way and engage in it. Even if they hate it, they might, you know, give it the time of day. Um, and that's about it, really. I think, you know, but when you're making, you, you get to create your fantasy, your building and play God and decide what the people want, you know, those poor buggers have to live in it. And um, that's, with that is a, you know, you have a huge, you have a huge responsibility to, um, you know, they can't just sort of, put the, put the uh, their flat back in the DVD cover and put it back on the shelf. I mean, they have to live in that, in that, you know, in your creation. So that's a whole different um, ball game and one that I feel kind of, you know, comes with a huge responsibility, I suppose. I, I, my mind started wandering to, cause you know, uh, so many architectural projects are large scale, huge endeavors, you know, if I if I was in that world and independent-minded, you know, I'd probably be seeking out very small spaces in which you could do stuff in a more loopy way, as Andrea says, and um, you know, look for those those cracks somewhere um, to try things out. You know, um, yeah, just an observation really on the differences between making a film and building a building. You know, what people have to um, inhabit. You know, Mark, I guess like. I guess you must have it like you know, like you meet someone. They say, "What do you make? What do you do, Mark?" And he said, "I make films." They're like, "Oh, like what? Did you make Independence Day or whatever?" Like it's the same kind of thing as an architect. Like, like "Oh, did you build a skyscraper?" It's like, "No, yeah, of course not." Like, yeah. no, know, absolutely. Like a very I mean, small thing about five years ago. You know, like it's not yeah. like a huge number of uh, like millions of square meters of like me anywhere. Um, but I was also thinking like just the way in which you. One thing maybe I remember about tonight was the way you reimagined the way you described how Lyft became a confessional, and I think that like mm. like thinking that kind of sort of lateral thinking or the observational thinking of like what happens in the spaces which we exist within, whether we're designing them, traveling in them, whatever. Like I think just understanding that that things are not necessarily as straightforward as they seem is really interesting. Like. I tell you my one lockdown thing I'm doing. I've been really busy work-wise, which is very lucky, but I've also been watching Seinfeld from the episode one. I'm like now on episode uh, season eight, you know, episode twenty-four or something like that. And I've been watching the last like five days, and I, I, it's driving me insane with the close observation of a of nineties um, urban life is like. It's unbelievable, you know, and it's full of those revelations, which are like, oh my God, a lift is like a, a confessional, which are typologically completely different. They exist in different histories, but in terms of how they, you know, how they perform in the contemporary world, yeah, sometimes they might be the same. Not always. That's, I mean, for me, that's the, exactly the kind of revelation which is so important for understanding what things are in the world, whether that's a piece of art, a film, a piece of architecture, a space, a home, rhetorical, whatever, like conceptual piece of architecture. All of these things are understandings about what things are. But maybe, Nick, um, you're, in, you're, you're imagining new worlds. You're not just looking at the world as it is and making observational comedy, which is like maybe what I'm doing. Um, you're 
looking at fields and seeing how we might solve the very pressing problems uh, of our urban and rural populations. Um, do you Nick have a? Has Nick left? No, I'm still here. Oh, hi, Nick. Yeah, um, it's getting dark here. As you can see, the lights, lights, uh, the light levels are down. Have you been watching those satellites? The Starlink satellites going over. No, this is apparently one of the darkest areas of England, but Ooh. I haven't been looking for satellites. I'd just like to say that I think that there's a, a level of humility in an architect designing a, a small off-grid shed that would be very educational for some architects and for people who are you know, used to big multi-million pound budgets. And there is a kind of uh, similarity between the filmmaker and the, and the house builder. Um, you know, the Hollywood blockbuster compared to the, the YouTube five minutes. Mm. They're both films, but, you know, of, obviously of a very different kind. And um, it is possible. Uh, Andrea, I really appreciated what you said about, about sustainability in architecture and in our lives. But it is possible to know what people want. And I try and listen every day to what people say they want and try and divine from that what they mean, what they don't mean, what people really want. And at the moment, there is the changes are taking place. It's too early to predict exactly where they're going to settle. But I'm getting hundreds of emails every week from people who want to get out of the city and get out of the sort of life that they've been living until now and find <laughs> something different. If you architects said, are in a quite a pivotal position to help them. You know, if you said like, hey, architects, can you help me think of what a little shed on a field would be? You'd be inundated with, with suggestions, maybe well, even bribes. Please do, because I just got myself a little field in Devon oh. and I got permission from the council remarkably quickly huh. to build a little shed. Well, maybe you could get, get like in a, touch, everyone. Maybe you could get an architect in residence. Like they could pitch up their tent, hang out. They can, they can be in residence in the shed. Yeah. And then they will build, yeah, they could like knock it up and then there you go. Maybe that is the, is a new kind of future. But look, guys, I'm exhausted. This is so exhausting. So like I've got to stop talking, basically. You probably heard enough from me anyway. Um, but thank you all the official contributors. It was so nice to talk to some uh, humans. Um, thanks everyone who came. Like, sorry, I wasn't very good at looking at the chat, but like, uh, it's really difficult. Um, thanks organizers for organizing. Um, Steve, Hugh, don't know. Yeah, I think uh, just to quickly say that normally what happens now is that we uh, we sort of uh, sort of close the the conversation and people can do what they want and go. But obviously, anyone who wants to stay will unmute everybody, and it just descends into chaos, and everybody can join a an after party kind of conversation. So, uh, and that that last time went till about two in the morning. So it's kind of the people can come and go as they please. Yeah, I can just unmute everyone now if everyone wants to give a quick round of applause for our speakers and chair for a great evening. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at 
www.fourthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.